one incredibly ambitious novel. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of October's book 2666 by Robert Bagliano, published in 2004. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves and discuss the first half on the second Friday of the month and the second part on the last Friday of the month. I'll be sharing your thoughts and mine, asking loads of questions, discussing ideas, making predictions and we'll decide what type of person would recommend the book to, if at all. I'd love you to read alongside. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. You can audible or just listen to the podcast since I will be summarising what happens. But be aware, there will be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation on the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I love reading your comments. Welcome to Bookshook. So I read up to the dot on page 445 where the new sentence mentions Calais Santa Catarina. That's exactly halfway. So Jean-Claude Pelletier is French and he is a German literature student. He's 19 years old and lives in Paris and he develops a love of the German writer Benno Archimboldi and translates his work. And then we're introduced to Piero Marini, who translates Archimboldi into Italian. And then we're introduced to Manuel Espinosa, who Spanish, studies Spanish literature and wanted to be a writer. He was banished by the Jungerian Club. Junger was a German writer. And he did his doctoral thesis on German literature and on Archimboldi. It's what very Borgesian, the idea of writing about imaginary literature. And then we're introduced to Liz Norton, who's 26 years old. For her, quote, reading was directly linked to pleasure, not to knowledge or enigmas or constructions or verbal labyrinths, as Marini, Espinosa and Pelletier believed it to be. Her German friend gave her, quote, strange Italian-sounding Archimboldi to read, and she has a revelation when she does read him. All four of them go to conferences on Archimboldi, where his work is dissected. Marini is writing a book on him, quote, a book that might be the grand Archimboldian opus, the pilot fish that would swim for a long time beside the great black shark of the Germans' oeuvre. I love this idea of this huge shark feeding the smaller fish or the smaller fish surviving and thriving on the company of this huge fish. There's two rival groups of Archimboldians. There's the Pelletier, Morini and Espinosa, who are the pan-European ones. And then we have the German Archimboldians, who are Schwartz, Borschmeier and Pohl. Pelletier, Morini and Espinosa have very high regard for Liz Norton's articles, but she, quote, wasn't a full professor, so they're a bit hesitant about making contact with her. At the Bremen conference, there is an attack and a counterattack by the two groups. And then Liz Norton appears as if heaven sent and demolishes the counterattack. <laughs> They eat together and Pelletier thinks of Liz romantically. Pelletier, Marini, Norton and Espinosa call each other constantly. Marini has a medical condition, he's wheelchair bound and Archimboldi, as I say, is a mystery recluse. Pelletier loves Norton, Espinosa less so and Marini seems to be not at all at this stage but things will change. There's a Swabian writer who reminisces about meeting Archimboldi when he was young. And this is one very, very long paragraph. He rambles and goes on very long diversions about the cut of Archimboldi's leather jacket. It's very funny, but there's lots of irreverent details. And then this morphs into a very diversionary story about the Swabian's dinner guest's trip to South America with her husband. And we, the reader, 
We're looking forward to first-hand tittle-tattle about Archimbaldi, but this is denied. The only conversation Archimbaldi has is an answer to why the Swabian Dinagess, she's not even named, husband won a horse race in Buenos Aires. Archimbaldi says your host was being selfless. And this is all we get. It's basically a 2,700-word sentence without any full stops. Is Bolano testing my strength as a reader? It's like a threshold, like those gates in the King Kong movie that I need to get through in order to get to the meat of the story. Hilariously, Pelletier, Morini and Espinosa pounce on the Swabian but get no more information on Archimbaldi. Quote, Although the four were careful to record every word he spoke as if they'd met their Moses... A good comparison there. His long paragraph with no full stops is like almost speaking in tongues. And it's an interpretation of another story, a story that contains a riddle, a riddle that was translated, and I'm reading a translation. So this is complicated. Archimboldi is turning into a real godlike figure. Espinosa and Pelletier go to Archimboldi's editor-in-chief, who's called Schnell, and Espinosa makes some homophobic comments about him. And the publicity editor says he was tall by comparing Archimboldi to an I and the late Mr Bubis to an E <laughs> to make L-E, L. Is the publicity director making a comment about their relationship, I'm thinking? The copy chief has no information at all. Mrs Bubis is the director of the publishing house and agrees to see them. Quote, an older woman in a white blouse and black skirt, a woman with a figure like Marlene Dietrich, as Pelletier would say much later, a woman who, despite her years, was still as strong-willed as ever, a woman who didn't cling to the edge of the abyss but plunged into it with curiosity and elegance, a woman who plunged into the abyss sitting down. What a fabulous description of her. Her husband, deceased, knew all the famous German authors. They ask whether she can help them get in touch with Archimboldi, and she says no. Pelletier and Norton begin a relationship, and Espinosa is outspoken. Marini is forgotten. We learn that Norton is a divorcee, and Pelletier tells Norton, quote, you'll have to choose. The two rival factions mentioned earlier make peace. Archimboldi is nominated for a Nobel Prize, what excitement there is, and they ponder whether the Swabian is Archimboldi himself. But Archimboldi didn't get the Nobel Prize. Norton writes this email to Marini, quote, She went on to say that she'd finally resolved her lingering quarrel with her ex-husband. The dark clouds had vanished from her life. Now she wanted to be happy and sing. This is Marino. He read the letter three times and with a heavy heart, he thought how wrong Norton was when she said her love and her ex-husband and everything they'd been through were behind her. Nothing is ever behind us. The narrator shows the differences between the lovers' lovemaking. And then Marini has a strange dream about Norton. He obviously loves her. Marini visits Norton in London, in Hyde Park. He bumps into Dick, a dissatisfied mug maker. And Liz tells Marini the story of an artist who makes a self-portrait. He chops off his hand and has it stuffed by a taxidermist. Quote, what do you think of that story? I don't know what to think, said Marini. The urge to weep or else faint persisted, but he restrained it. So it feels like a real collage work at the moment. Many stories within stories. And for a novel by a Chilean writer, I was not expecting it to feel so close to home. Hyde Park is pretty much in my backyard. Continuing the narrative, a Serbian critic publishes a paper on Archimboldi, confirming that he's, quote, an old man and, quote, German. Not a huge amount there. This is all based on a reservation Archimboldi made but never turned up to. 
Quote, the words old man and German, he waved like magic wands to uncover a secret. And at the same time, they supplied the stamp of ultra-concrete critical literature, a non-speculative literature free of ideas, assertions, denials, doubts, free of any intent to serve as guide, neither pro nor con, just an eye seeking out the tangible elements, not judging them, but simply displaying them coldly. Archaeology of the facsimile and by the same token of the photocopier. And then the narrator spends a whole page on conjecture. Quote, This explained the absence of an Archimboldi on the flight to Morocco. Of course, there were other possibilities. At the last minute, after having second or fourth thoughts, Archimboldi may have decided not to take the trip or to travel somewhere else instead, say, the United States. Or maybe it was all simply a joke or misunderstanding. So much for ultra-concrete critical literature. Liz Norton decides to distance herself from Pelletier and Espinosa, and Pelletier imagines Espinosa's killed in a plane crash. Pelletier and Espinosa are frustrated by Norton's decision to, quote, be friends, and they muse whether they will become enemies. A few months later, Espinosa and Pelletier call on Norton, only to discover a younger man, Alex Pritchard, that Espinosa almost starts a fight with. And then Espinosa and Pelletier say, look, please choose one of us. And then Espinosa and Pelletier start seeing Norton again. Pritchard is occasionally seen. He gives Pelletier some advice. Quote, Be careful, said Pritchard. Careful of what? Pelletier managed to ask. Of the Medusa, said Pritchard. Beware of the Medusa. And then before he continued down the stairs, he added, When you've got her in your hands, she'll blow you to pieces. Interesting. Hmm. Espinosa and Pelletier are bored at Archimbaldi conferences. Quote, 30-something speaking only two words, love me. Norton, Espinosa and Pelletier get into a cab together. Espinosa and Pelletier end up beating up the taxi driver and, quote, having their threesome. The cabbie ends up in hospital. Espinosa has a breakdown. Then Pelletier dreams he's married to Norton. Pelletier and Espinosa visit prostitutes in European capital cities. Pelletier goes with a prostitute called Vanessa, who has a son and Moroccan husband. They forget the guilt of the cabbie and get back into their scholarly routine, including reconnecting with Marini. Espinosa describes the trip to a Swiss sanatorium to visit that self-portrait artist, the one who chopped his hand off. Marini asks the artist, why did you mutilate yourself? But he whispers the answer, so we never actually hear the answer. And then Marini vanishes. Pelletier and Espinosa desperately try to find him, and they do, eventually. And Marini spends time with Norton and tells her, quote, the artist mutilated himself for money. Marini chats with a young Mexican scholar, Rodolfo Alatore, whose friend in Mexico City met Archimbaldi, quote, just the other day. And then we have the story of how El Cerdo, the pig, a writer, is also employed by the government as a top cultural official, meets Archimbaldi. Have a listen to this. Quote, weren't you supposed to have disappeared? The old man looked at him and smiled politely. So for some reason, Archimboldi was supposed to disappear, I presume for political reasons. The story is repeated to Pelletier, Norton and Espinosa, and El Cerdo gave his card to Mrs Bubis, who was Archimboldi's editor, when at a party in Berlin. El Cerdo says that Archimboldi was flying to Santa Teresa in Mexico. He gives him his card, but never hears from him again. Archimboldi is up for a Nobel Prize again, and they muse on how he would respond if he were to win. Quote, what could a man past 80 have to say? What could the Nobel mean to such a man with no family, no heirs, no public face? 
And on his reasons for Mexico, quote, they couldn't explain to themselves what Archimbali was doing in Mexico. Why would someone in his 80s travel to a country he had never visited before? Sudden interest, research for the setting of a novel in progress. It was improbable, they thought, not least because the four believed there would be no more books by Archimbali. They weighed the possibilities of senile dementia. They discarded their hypotheses and cleaved strictly to what El Cerdo had said. What if Archimbaldi were fleeing? What if Archimbaldi had suddenly found a new reason to flee? Pelletier, Espinosa and Norton, not Marini, travel to the Mexico City to track down Archimbaldi. They visit the hotel where Archimbaldi checked in as Hans Reiter. They fly to Hermosillo and then visit the University of Santa Teresa. Santa Teresa was where Archimbaldi was going. Norton senses strangeness everywhere and the dean of the university says their professor called Almalfitano may help, quote, the critics. So this is the first reference to Pelletier, Espinosa and Norton as the critics by the narrator. Norton has a strange dream, a scary woman reflected in a mirror. And then the critics meet with Amalfitano. He translated Archimbaldi into Argentinian. The critics and Amalfitano try to track Archimbaldi down. Quote, after some argument, the three critics concluded and Almafitano agreed that he could have come to Santa Teresa only to see a friend or to collect information for a novel in progress or for both reasons at once. So they have no success. Almafitano compares the intellectual university life to a theatre stage. And here I'm thinking the narrator seems to have completely dropped any hint of the former love triangle that there was with Norton. Perplexing. It's as if they are different people. Norton imagines Marini in his Turin apartment, quote, wearing slippers shiny as the night. The critics chat and then the dean recounts the tale of the Mexican writer shot by the resistance. And the next day, there's a sightseeing tour of the city and the critics all have very strange dreams. At Almafatano's house, a book of Diest, who's a Galician poet, is hanging on the washing line. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Very strange. Norton leaves Mexico. She leaves, obviously, Espinosa and Pelletier behind in Mexico, and they comment on their lack of lovemaking. Espinosa and Pelletier deliver a lecture, and there's an after-party from this lecture. Quote, Then Espinosa remembered that the night before one of the boys had told them the story of the woman who were being killed. All he remembered was that the boy had said there were more than 200 of them and he'd had to repeat it two or three times because neither Espinosa nor Pelletier could believe his ears. Continues, One of the boys says, There are people who have been in prison a long time but women keep dying. So there's been this murder epidemic. Espinosa finds the rug seller girl that he was transfixed by a couple of days earlier when they went on that tour. And then they receive an email from Norton as to why she left abruptly. The email is very similar and obviously is about her relationship with Pelletier and Espinosa. Espinosa has breakfast with the rug girl. Then we continue this letter from Norton explaining why she left. Norton sees that the relationship with Pelletier and Espinosa is not based on fondness. We have a cycle of three small chapters in rotation. We've got the contents of Norton's letter. We've got Espinosa becoming more acquainted with the rug girl, Rebecca. And we have what Pelletier has been reading. So if we start off with the contents of Norton's letter, we hear that Edwin Johns dies. Quote, That night I thought about Edwin Johns. I thought about his hand, now doubtless on display in his retrospective. The hand that the sanatorium orderly couldn't grasp to prevent his fall. She visits Marini and they declare their love. And then Espinosa and 
the rug girl Rebecca make love and quote they went to a club in the center of Santa Teresa where the girl had never been but that her friends highly recommended as they drank Cuba Libras Rebecca told him that two of the girls who later showed up dead had been kidnapped on their way out of the club their bodies were dumped in the desert Espinosa says that one day he may come back and marry her but she doesn't respond and then we find out what Pelletier has been reading. Pelletier believes that Archimboldi is in Santa Teresa, but they won't find him. Pelletier says, quote, this is the closest we'll ever be to him. And I'm thinking that rotation felt a little bit like a vortex spiralling very quickly towards the end of that first part about the critics. So then we go on to the, the part about Amal Filtano. So Amal Filtano has a daughter, Rosa, and he wants to leave Santa Maria. So Rosa's mother left to chase a poet. She travels with this lady called Amaculada, and a week later, Amal Filtano gets a letter where she describes, quote, making love to the gay poet from Mondragon in Spain. The letter continues, they visit the poet at the asylum, and Lola plans the poet's escape. Lola is Amal Filtano's estranged wife. Quote, we'll cross into France, over the mountains like pilgrims, we'll make our way to Saint-Jean-de-Luc and take the train to Paris, travelling through the countryside, which is the prettiest in the world at this time of year will live in hostels that's Emma's plan she and I will work cleaning or taking care of children in the wealthy neighbourhoods of Paris while you write poetry at night you'll read us your poems and make love to me his doctor, Gorky, is writing his biography and she makes love to a driver who, quote, didn't understand Lola's obsession with the poet. I don't understand your fascination with making love in the cemetery either, said Lola, but I don't judge you for it. True, Larazabel admitted everyone's got obsessions. And then Emma goes off travelling, quote, she imagined her stopped at crossroads as the trucks with their many tons of cargo passed at full speed, raising dust clouds that didn't touch her, as if her hesitance and vulnerability constituted a state of grace, a dome that protected her from the inclemencies of fate, nature and her fellow beings. Lola visits the asylum and waves from a distance, but he is preoccupied. I love this description of the wave. Quote, as the sun rose higher in the sky, she saw a tight knot of patients emerge from a slate outbuilding. Then they scattered to the benches in the parks and lit cigarettes. She thought she saw the poet. He was with two inmates and he was wearing jeans and a very tight white t-shirt. She waved to him, shyly at first, as if her arms were stiff from the cold, then openly tracing strange patterns in the still cold air, trying to give her signals. A laser-like urgency, trying to transmit telepathic messages in his direction. She continues to try to visit the poet, but is cut off. And Lorazabel proposes, but she reminds him that she's already married. And Lola then goes for long wanders. Quote, Sometimes, without calling first or leaving a note, she would sleep at Lorazabel's apartment, and he would go looking for her at the cemetery, the asylum, the old boarding house where she stayed, the places where the tramps and transients of San Sebastian gathered. Once he found her in the waiting room of the train station, another time he found her sitting on a seafront bench at La Concha, at an hour when the only people out walking were two opposite types, those running out of time and those with time to burn. Lola ends up travelling to France where she lives like a vagrant. Amalfitano notices Emma in a playground wave to another boy, slightly older than Rosa. Who is this boy? Is he some kind of a strange son? Very interesting. Lola goes back after seven years to find Amalfitano. And Amalfitano is teaching in Barcelona now. Lola is dying and wants to say goodbye to Rosa and lives in a beautifully poetic way. Listen to this. Quote, 
This vision of Lola lingered in his mind for many years, like a memory rising up from glacial seas, although in fact he hadn't seen anything which meant that there was nothing to remember, only the shadow of its ex-wife projected on the neighbouring buildings in the beam of the streetlights, and then the dream, Lola walking off down one of the highways out of Saint-Cojat, walking along the side of the road, an almost deserted road since most cars took the new toll highway to save time, a woman bowed by the weight of her suitcase, walking fearlessly along the side of the road. Amalfitano finds the book on geometry that Espinosa commented on hanging on Amalfitano's clothesline in part one of the book. Amalfitano can't remember owning it. It did originally provoke sadness. He muses that he may have, for some reason, psychologically shut out the book. It was hanging out to dry, remember. Perhaps some water-related catastrophe occurred to make him so sad and block out the memory. I'm not sure. He and Rosa fly to Mexico to Santa Teresa, Amalfitano hangs up the book on his washing line again. This is very mysterious. He copies a, quote, ready-made artwork by Duchamp hanging the diest on his washing line. And like before, or was that for another reason? Amalfitano doodles geometric patterns inspired by diest, possibly, labelled with famous philosophers, writers and artists. Does he want to maybe combine art and science here? There's definitely some free association going on. He researches diest in the university library and his daughter finds his book experiments very perplexing. Quote, it's a Duchamp idea, leaving a geometry book hanging exposed to the elements to see if it learns something about real life. You're going to destroy it, said Rosa. Not me, said Amalfitano. Nature. You're getting crazier every day, you know, said Rosa. Amalfitano smiled. Yeah, I kind of agree with her. Amalfitano recounts his own father, born in Naples, who thinks that all Chileans are homosexuals and loves boxing. Amalfitano worries about the safety of his daughter because of all the kidnappings, and Perez, his colleague, soothes his nerves. It was Perez who persuaded Amalfitano to come to Santa Teresa when his Barcelona University contract ended. Amalfitano describes meeting Augusto Guerra, who's the Dean of Faculty of Literature, for the first time. Guerra theorised on why biographies have become so popular. Quote, they want to learn something but aren't prepared to jump through the same hoops themselves. Amalfitano hears a voice in his head saying, quote, hello, Oscar Amalfitano. Please don't be afraid. He rushes to Rosa's room, obviously scared of kidnappings, but she's fine. He is having a bit of a psychiatric breakdown at this point. And it's interesting that the voice says, quote, Oscar, a very personal interior voice. No one else in the book has ever called him that. Oscar reflects on his voices that he's hearing, quote, That night there were no further manifestations of the voice and Amafitano slept very badly, his sleep plagued by jerks and starts, as if someone was scratching his arms and legs, his body drenched in sweat, although at five in the morning the torment ceased and Lola appeared in his sleep, waving to him from a park behind a tall fence. He was on the other side, along with the faces of two friends he hadn't seen for years and would probably never see again, and a room full of philosophy books covered in dust but still magnificent. At that same moment, the Santa Teresa police found the body of another teenage girl half buried in a vacant lot in one of the neighbourhoods on the edge of the city, and a strong wind from the west hurled itself against the slope of the mountains to the east, raising dust and a litter of newspaper and cardboard on its way through Santa Teresa, moving the clothes that Rosa had hung in the backyard, as if the wind, young and energetic in its brief life, were trying on Amalfitano's shirts and pants and slipping into his daughter's underpants and reading a few pages of the Testamento Geometrico to see whether there was anything in it that might be of use, anything that might explain the strange landscape of streets and houses through which it was galloping, or that would explain it to itself as wind. 
We've seen that playground symbolism before when he sees Emma waving from a park behind a wooden fence at the boy in a playground. There's something malevolent in that wind. It gets everywhere and shows no respect to the boundaries. Is it symbolising the darkness taking over? Maybe. I wonder if Amalfitano hanging up a geometry book because it won't be, quote, any use to this strong hurling wind. Continuing on, he thinks his teeth are turning brown because of the water. The wind, I'm thinking, the water, what next? The air, maybe fire? Professor Perez, Alma Fatano, Rosa and Perez's son go on a trip to the countryside and it's all very pleasant. Quote, when they got home it was dark but the shadow of Diaz's book hanging from the clothesline was clearer, steadier, more reasonable, thought Amar Fatano, than anything they'd seen on the outskirts of Santa Teresa or in the city itself. Images with no handhold, images freighted with all the orphanhood in the world. Fragments, fragments. I'm thinking, are these fragments echoes of the dream he has in the car on the way home? History broken down. History fragmented, possibly. He draws three columns of philosophers. Do they perhaps represent fragments of history and can be rearranged much like the rock formations in his dream? He hears the voice again, and it's a very different personality to Alma Fatana. It's a very peculiar, quote, fragment of his mind. It's very homophobic, for example. The voice explains how almost everything, quote, lets us down. And I'm thinking poor Alma Fatane's voice reminds me of the narrative voice in my head as I'm reading this book. It's very meta. He wakes and, quote, he looked at his watch. It was four in the morning. He heard someone starting a car. The engine took a while to turn over. He got up and went over to the window. The cars parked in front of the house were empty. He looked behind him and then put his hand on the doorknob. The voice said, be careful, but it said it as if he were very far away, at the bottom of a ravine, revealing glimpses of volcanic rock, rhyolite, and the sights, streaks of silver and gold, petrified puddles covered with tiny little eggs, while red-tailed hawks soared above in the sky, which was purple like the skin of an Indian woman beaten to death. Whoa, there's that history broken down again, symbolised by the rocks, rhyolites, andesites, streaks of silver and gold, again, fragments. And that poor Indian woman, is that some kind of colonial guilt making an appearance? If so, I think it's a new idea. A black car passes by and the voice says... Quote, you'll have to be careful, my friend. Things here seem to be coming to a head. Coming to a head. You're telling me there's this awful, ominous feeling something bad is about to happen. The voice says he's the spirit of his father and begins instructing him to do things. I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, they're innocent things at the moment, but how long will that last? I'm praying the voice doesn't tell him to murder. It seems to be a disease spreading like the wind or water in the city. He wonders whether the voice is a spirit. Quote, he said to himself he didn't believe in ghosts or spirits, although during his childhood in the south of Chile, people talked about the Mechshona, who waited for riders on a tree branch, dropping onto horses' haunches, clinging to the back of the cowboy or smuggler without letting go, like a lover whose embrace maddened the horse as well as the rider, both of them dying of fright or ending up at the bottom of a ravine, or the colocolo, or the chanchon, or the candelillas, or so many other little creatures, lost souls, incubi and succubi, lesser demons that roamed between the Cordillera de la Costa and the Andes, but in which he didn't believe, not exactly because of his training in philosophy. Schopenhauer, after all, believed in ghosts, and it was surely a ghost that appeared to Nietzsche and drove him mad, but because of his materialist leanings. So he rejected the possibility of ghosts, at least until he had exhausted other lines of inquiry. The voice could be a ghost, he wouldn't rule it out, but he tried to come up with a different explanation. After much reflection, though, the only thing that made sense was the theory of the lost soul. 
What a fantastic window into another culture. And I love that he rejects a ghost because he believes he's a rationalist and then plumps for, quote, lost soul. Very, very humorous. The dean's son calls him from a car and says, quote, you have nothing to fear from me. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. He, quote, smiled like a cocksure sniper. Oh, dear. And there's some brilliant characterization here. Listen to this. He wore jeans and cowboy boots. Inside the car on the back seat lay a pearl grey designer jacket and a folder full of papers. I was just driving by, said Marco Antonio Guerra. They headed toward Colonia Lindavista. But before they got there, the dean's son suggested they get a drink. Amalfitano politely declined the invitation. Then let's go to your place and have a drink, said Marco Antonio Guerra. I don't have anything to offer, apologised Almafatano. Then that's settled, said Marco Antonio Guerra, and he took the first turn. What a creep. They go to a bar and drink mezcal, and everything's okay. The staff of the bar eye up Marco suspiciously. And then Almafatano reads a book about an Irishman who marries a native Arishanian woman. He describes some grammatical errors in the book, which creates a real feeling of realism. Almafatano bumps into the dean's son, and then they discuss the light at the end of the tunnel at near-death experiences. Quote... Well, said Marco Antonio Guerra, if you want to know what I think, I don't believe it. People see what they want to see, and what people want to see never has anything to do with the truth. People are cowards to the last breath. I'm telling you, between you and me, the human being, broadly speaking, is the closest thing there is to a rat. He goes to dinner with the rector of the university and his wife. At some point during the dinner, Amalfitano notices, quote, rather murky exchange of glances between the rector and his wife. In her eyes, he glimpsed something that might have been hatred. At the same time, a sudden fear flitted as swiftly as a butterfly across the rector's face. But Amalfitano noticed it, and for a moment, the second flutter of wings, the rector's fear nearly brushed his own skin. When he recovered and looked at the other dinner guests, he realised that no one had noticed the slight shadow, like a hastily dug pit that gives off an alarming stench. That really reminds me of the strong hurling wind of the west from his dream a few days earlier. But this time it's a delicate flutter. Continuing on, there's a chat about traditional South American music and then there's some more history behind the Chilean independence, including methods of communication using telepathy. Listen to this, quote, primitive man was ignorant of language. He communicated by brainwaves as animals and plants do. When he resorted to sounds and gestures and hand signals to communicate, he began to lose the gift of telepathy and this loss was accelerated when he went to live in cities distancing himself from nature and then the narrator summarizes beautifully quote from this one could conclude that one all araucanians or most of them were telepathic two the araucanian language was closely linked to the language of homer three Araucanians had travelled all over the globe, especially to India, ancient Germania and Peloponnese. Four, Araucanians were amazing sailors. Five, Araucanians had two kinds of writing, one based on knots and others on triangles, the latter secret. Six, the exact nature of the mode of communication that Kilapan called Adkintue, and that had been discovered by the Spaniards, although they were unable to decipher it, wasn't very clear. Maybe it was the sending of messages by the movement of tree branches located in strategic places like at the top of hills, something like the smoke signals of the Plains Indians of America. Seven, in contrast, telepathic communication was never discovered, and if at some point it stopped working, this was because the Spaniards killed the telepaths. Eight, telepathy also permitted the Arcanians of Chile to remain in permanent contact with Chilean migrants scattered in places as far-flung as populous India or green Germany. Nine, should one deduce from this that Bernardo O'Higgins was also a telepath? Should one deduce that the author himself, Lonco Kilopan, was a telepath? Yes, in fact, one should. 
But then, like a true academic, Amalfitano makes loads of deductions and imagines the birth of the text. Quote, One could also deduce, and with a little effort, see other things, thought Amalfitano, as he diligently gauged his mood, watching D.S.'s book hanging in the dark in the backyard. One could see, for example, the date that Killapan's book was published, 1978. In other words, during the military dictatorship, and deduce the atmosphere of triumph, loneliness, and fear in which it was published. One could see, for example, a gentleman of Indian appearance, half out of his head but hiding it well, dealing with the printers of the prestigious Editorial Universitaria, located on Calais San Francisco, number 454 in Santiago. One could see the sum that the publication of the little book would cost the historian of the race, the president of the Indigenous Confederation of Chile, and the secretary of the Academy of the Hurricanian Language, a sum that Mr. Killipan tries to bargain down more wishfully than effectively, Although the manager of the print shop knows that they aren't exactly overrun with work and that he could very well give this Mr. Killipan a little discount, especially since the man swears he has two more books already finished and edited, Arcanian Legends and Greek Legends and Origins of the American Man and Kinship between Arcanians, Aryans, Early Germans and Greeks. And he swears up and down that he'll bring them here because, gentlemen, a book published by the Editorial Universitaria is a book distinguished at first glance, a book of distinction, and it's this final argument that could convinces the printer, the manager, the office judge who handles these matters to let him have his little discount. The word distinguished, the word distinction, ah, 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 pants Amafatane, struggling for breath as if he's having a sudden asthma attack. Ah, chilly. I love that intrinsic and extrinsic analysis and breakdown of the book. Continuing on, Amafitano considers whether the true author may be someone else, for example, Pinochet, the Chilean dictator. And Marco Guerrero describes how he gets into bar fights, quote, I need the release. He goes on to remark how he prefers poetry to novels. And it reminds Amafitano of a pharmacist he once knew who, quote, preferred minor works to major ones. He chose The Metamorphosis over the trial. He chose Bartleby over Moby Dick. He chose A Simple Heart over Bouvard and Percuchet and A Christmas Carol over a tale of two cities or the Pickwick Papers what a sad paradox thought Amafitano now even bookish pharmacists are afraid to take on the great imperfect torrential works books that blaze paths into the unknown they choose the perfect exercises of the great masters or what amounts to the same thing they want to watch the great masters spar but they have no interest in real combat when the great masters struggle against that something that something that terrifies us all that something that cows us and spurs us on amid blood and mortal wounds and stench. It reminds me of his comment on biography, quote, they want to learn something but don't want to jump through the same hoops themselves. In this case, quote, blaze paths into the unknown. Just like me and you are doing tackling this doorstop of a book. Before the close of this part, Amalfitano dreams of Boris Yeltsin, quote, the last communist philosopher. Quote, Boris Yeltsin looked at Amafitano with curiosity, as if it were Amafitano who had invaded his dream, not the other way around. And he said, Listen carefully to what I have to say, comrade. I'm going to explain what the third leg of the human table is. I'm going to tell you, and then leave me alone. Life is demand and supply, or supply and demand. That's what it all boils down to. But that's no way to live. A third leg is needed to keep the table from collapsing into the garbage pit of history, which in turn is permanently collapsing into the garbage pit of the void. So take note, this is the equation. Supply plus demand plus magic. And what is magic? Magic is epic and it's also sex and Dionysian myths and play. And then we go on to part three, the part about fate. 
where it opens with Quincy Williams contemplating suicide. He's in pain. He remembers his mother's death when he was 30. Quote, maybe it started then. That is the suicidal thoughts. His mother would have said, quote, be a man and bear your cross. During this time, Quincy Williams, or Fate, works for a magazine and they call him Oscar Fate for some reason. He's investigating Barry Seaman. There's a mention that the chief boxing correspondent was murdered in Chicago. So he's obviously in the US. He goes to the cremation ceremony, and it's interesting that he's called Quincy by the narrator when associating with his mother. When he's on his own, he's referred to as fate. He lives in New York. He's going to Detroit to investigate Barry Seaman, and he grabs a cab to go to the airport. On the plane, fate overhears a story of a drowning man rescued when a plane coincidentally plunges into the same lake. Some very black humour there. He stares out of the window, quote... The clouds that look like cathedrals or maybe just little toy churches abandoned in a labyrinthine marble quarry 100 times bigger than the Grand Canyon. Lovely detail there. He gets to Detroit and follows his Barry Seaman lead to a bar and there is a racist mural on the wall outside the bar. And here we learn that Oscar Fate works for the magazine called Black Dawn. Fate finally gets to Barry Seaman's flat where he is sick again. He and Seaman go to Rebecca Holmes Park. They hear some rap music and Seaman says he doesn't like rap because the only out that it offered was suicide. Seaman delivers a sermon on, quote, danger. He mentions that he founded the Black Panthers with Marius Newell. He explains how Newell was murdered in Santa Cruz near the sea that he loved, probably because he was trying to, quote, fight the drug trade in town and somebody didn't like it. He talks of money and is prescriptive. Quote, when poor people make money, they should, for example, help their neighbour or adopt an orphan, etc., etc. He also talks about food. His book, Eating Ribs with Barry Seaman, combines food and history and helped him get back onto his feet. And he ends with a prescriptive, quote, duck à l'orange recipe. <laughs> Seaman talks of all the different types of stars. Starfish, movie stars, actual stars, which may be dead or alive. Quote, they are semblances the same way dreams are semblances. He also talks about meteors and how they're different and they're to do with breaking away. He also talks about usefulness, things once appreciated and distrusted, for example, smiles. And this is me perhaps going off on one, but this really reminds me of literary theory. Suddenly the surface of something is not to be trusted anymore. No. He complains some of his audience are fat and gives another prescriptive recipe and then makes some lovely comments about reading. Quote, reading is like thinking, like praying, like talking to a friend, like expressing your ideas, like listening to other people's ideas, like listening to music. Oh, yes. Like looking at the view, like taking a walk on the beach. While Fate sleeps, there's a news report about a murder in Santa Teresa. And he dreams of an old communist, Antonio Jones, who gives him a book by a Sandhurst military man called The Slave Trade by Hugh Thomas. When he wakes, he buys a copy of the same book. His editor asks him to cover a boxing match in Mexico and on the plane he reads, quote, the slave trade. He overhears a conversation with a detective who argues that if a person is killed who is, quote, outside society, no one bats an eye. The detective says... Quote, living in that city is outside of society and everyone, I mean everyone, is like the ancient Christians in the Roman circus. The crimes have different signatures, the city seems to be booming, it seems to be moving ahead in some ineffable way, but the best thing would be for every last one of the people there to head out into the desert some night and cross the border. Fate reads from the slave book and tells the waitress he's covering a fight in St. Teresa. He travels across the border to Mexico and gets to his motel. And then Fate goes to Merolino's training ranch. Merolino is one of the Mexican fighters. And his sparring partner, Omar Abdel, says, 
quote, put your money on Merolino. His opponent is an American called Count Pickett. Fate goes for a drink with the Mexican reporter Chucho Flores. And we hear a bit more about the magazine that he works for. Quote, it's a Harlem magazine, if that means anything to you. And Chucho says, no, it doesn't. And Fate says, it's a magazine where the owners are African-American and the editor is African-American and almost all the reporters are African-American. Really? asked Chucho Flores. Can you do objective reporting that way? It was then that Fate realised Chucho Flores was a little drunk. He thought about what he'd just said. In fact, he didn't really have any basis to claim that almost all the reporters were black. He'd seen only African-Americans at the office, although, of course, he didn't know the correspondence. Maybe there was some Chicano in California, he thought, or maybe in Texas, but it also seemed likely that there was no one in Texas, because otherwise, why send him from Detroit and not give the job to the person in Texas or California? Fate ends up hearing a long-winded story about Robert Rodriguez by one of the reporter's friends and Pickett arrives and is interviewed. The women who have been killed in Mexico is alluded to and Chucho Flores is outraged by the murders. Quote, most of them are workers at the Maquiadoras, young girls with long hair, but that isn't necessarily the mark of the killer. In Santa Teresa, almost all the girls have long hair. Fate is with a group of American reporters and one of them tells the story of a Mexican heavyweight and theorises that there are so few. Fate tells his editor he wants to cover the murders in Santa Teresa and the editor says there's no budget but Fate recalls interviewing members of Mohammedan Brotherhood who give theories about clan members and the inner workings of the CIA and the FBI. Fate says to the editor, look, these murders may be a serial killer, just one or two people. And the editor says, no, 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 no. So he's definitely being refused. Now, Guadalupe Repita, he's a female reporter, overhears his conversation and tells Fate she's taken on her predecessor's job of investigating the murders. She gets drunk and she's going to visit the chief suspect, who's an American in prison, and asks Fate to accompany her, and he agrees. He chats with a dissatisfied sports writer Campbell at the Senora Resort Bar and then Flores selects Fate to go for a drive. And then we learn Fate went to New York University and enjoyed creative writing. He feels sick and vomits, don't know quite why yet. And Fate prepares to watch the fight and decides not to join Guadalupe Repeater going to see the chief suspect. Quote, why interview a suspect serial killer he couldn't write about? I'm thinking, will something happen to her to force him to morally take on the case? He reckes the arena, Del Norte, where the fight's going to take place, and there's no one there. At the Senora Bar, Fate is taken by a man with a bird tattoo who points at a garbage can, which is a bit strange and mysterious. And his sandwich is, quote, filled with all kinds of things. A very unsettling scene. Fate gets to the fight and finds the press arena and hears someone shout his name. At the ringside, he meets Flores, alongside beautiful Rosa Amalfitano, who Fate is taking a shine to. This huge preparation and then the fight is over in about five sentences. Quote, the fight was short. Pickett knocks out Merolino. Charlie talks of watching movies as a religious experience. He discovers Rosa Amafatana and Chucho Flores, quote, doing business. She's high, so maybe drugs. Fate witnesses the violence against a woman in a bar and he learns that Garcia, who's Merolino's training partner, went to prison for killing his sister. Rosa Amafitano and Chucho Flores may be close since driving in the rear car looks like they're kissing to Fate. And he goes to Charlie Cruz's house. Quote, in Charlie Cruz's garage there was a mural painted on one of the cement walls. The mural was six feet tall and maybe ten feet long and showed the version of Guadalupe in the middle of a lush landscape of rivers and forests and gold mines and silver mines and 
and oil rigs and giant cornfields and wheat fields and vast meadows where cattle grazed. The virgin had her arms spread wide, as if offering all of these riches in exchange for nothing. But despite being drunk, fate noticed right away there was something wrong about her face. One of the virgin's eyes was open and the other was closed. Maybe she's watching for these things that have been stolen. They watch a movie that contemplates sex and death. It's brilliantly described, very dreamlike. I'm reminded of Ekphrasis again, that verbal description of visual art. And then he discovers Rosa Amafitana taking cocaine in an upstairs bedroom. And he spies a strange coffin and weird saddle in the bathroom. Mmm, very, very strange. Fate tries to, quote, save Rosa Amafitana. And Chucho Flores says to Fate, just leave. He leads Rosa away and punches Corona, who has a gun, when he is prevented from leaving and he takes the gun and as he gets into the car the version of Guadalupe stares at him with her eye open he puts Chicho Flores in front seat and Rosa in the back cleans and throws away the guns and dumps Flores at bus stop Rosa Amafitano's story is then described how she knew Rosa Mendes then Chicho Flores Chicho Flores and Rosa have sex Chicho is a cocaine addict one night Rosa Amafitano asked him to leave her some cocaine and then quote that night when she got home she went out into the yard and saw her father talking to the book that for some time had been hanging from the clothesline in the backyard then before her father noticed she was there she shut herself in her room to read a novel and think about her relationship with the mexican so here the two stories collide chapter two and chapter three Rosa introduces Chucho to her father. He doesn't like him. Her father and Charlie Cruz discuss persistence of vision and the birth of the zoetrope. And then Charlie Cruz says to Oscar Amafitano, quote, I can make you a magic disc. And the magic disc becomes a very important symbol. Quote, I can make you one of those right now, said Charlie Cruz. All I need is a piece of cardboard, two coloured pencils and a piece of string, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, 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 oh, no, oh, no, no, no need for that, said Oscar Amafitano. A good description is enough for me. In a way, we all have millions of magic discs floating or spinning in our brains. Oh, really, said Charlie Cruz. Wow, said Rosa Mendes. Just as we had that beautiful description of the film earlier, great reference to literature there. The theatre of the mind. The dialogue continues. Quote, well, there was a little old drunk laughing. That was the picture on one side of the disc, and on the other side was a picture of a prison cell or the bars of a cell. When you spun the disc, the laughing drunk looked like he was behind bars. Which isn't really a laughing matter, is it? said Oscar Almafatano. No, it isn't, said Charlie Cruz with a sigh. Still, the drunk, by the way, why do you call him a little old drunk and not just a drunk, was laughing, maybe because he knew he wasn't in jail. For a few seconds, remembered Rosa, Charlie Cruz's gaze altered, as if he were trying to see where her father was going with all this. Charlie Cruz, as we've already said, was a relaxed man, and for those few seconds, although his poise and natural calm were unshaken, something did happen behind his face as if the lens through which he was observing her father, Rosa remembered, had stopped working and he was proceeding calmly to change it. An operation that took less than a fraction of a second, but during which his gaze was necessarily left naked or empty, vacant. In any case, since one lens was being removed and another inserted, and both operations couldn't be carried out simultaneously, and for that fraction of a second, which Rosa remembered as if she had invented it herself, Charlie Cruz's face was empty or it emptied, and the speed at which this happened was startling, say the speed of light, to put it in an exaggerated but nevertheless roughly accurate terms, and the emptying of the face was complete, hair and 
teeth included, although to say hair and teeth in the presence of that blankness was like saying nothing, all of Charlie's Cruz's features emptied. His wrinkles, his veins, his pores, everything left defenseless, everything acquiring a dimension to which the only response remembered Rosa could be vertigo and nausea, although it wasn't. Oscar Amafitano continues talking now. The little old drunk is laughing because he thinks he's free, but he's really in prison. That's what makes it funny. But in fact, the prison is drawn on the other side of the disc, which means one could also say that the little old drunk is laughing because we think he's in prison, not realising that the prison is on one side and the little old drunk is on the other. And that's reality, no matter how much we spin the disc. And it looks to us as if the little old drunk is behind bars. In fact, we could even guess what the little old drunk is laughing about. He's laughing at our credulity. You might even say at our eyes. Reminds me of the Virgin of Guadalupe, one eye open, one eye closed. The drunk's eyes open and we have our eye closed, or vice versa. Chucho gets jealous when Rosa goes for a drink with a classmate and Rosa says to Fate, quote, that was three days ago. She breaks up with him because she doesn't like jealous men. She sleeps in his hotel. He chats with the clerk who gives him a card to a cyber cafe so that he can write up his article. Quote, the card for the Santa Teresa Cyber Cafe was a deep red, so red that it was hard to read what was printed on it. On the back, in a lighter red, was a map that showed exactly where the cafe was located. He asked the receptionist to translate the name of the place. The clerk laughed and said it was called Fire Walk With Me. Sounds like the title of a David Lynch film, said Fate. The clerk shrugged and said that all of Mexico was a collage of diverse and wide-ranging homages. Every single thing in this country is an homage to everything in the world, even the things that haven't happened yet, he said. He watches Rosa in bed, quote, Sometimes he turned his head and glanced at Rosa sleeping, but the third or fourth time he realised he didn't need to turn and look. It simply wasn't necessary. Reminds me of the version of Guadalupe again, or the imprisoned man. Reality is not dependent on an observer. Continuing on, they escape the motel because Clark says the police came knocking. I said you were gone. They mused that it could be Chucho, Corona or another Charlie Cruz. What a lot of sea-sounding names, just a bit like East of Eden there. They, quote, drove around the block to see whether anyone was lying in wait for them, but everything was calm, the calm of Quicksilver or the calm that heralds border dawns. Again, our ability to perceive reality correctly is put into question there, I think. They go to Rosa's and Fate sees a strange book hanging and he sees Oscar Amalfitano. Quote, Fate saw Oscar Amalfitano appear in the doorway, barefoot, his hair uncombed, dressed in a very wrinkled white shirt and jeans, as if he'd slept in his clothes. For a moment, the two of them looked at each other, wordless, as if they were asleep, and their dreams had converged on common ground, a place where sound was alien. This is how I feel, the convergence of those two chapters and the two characters. They recount the story of the boxing match. Oscar tells Fate to get his daughter to Barcelona. Oscar says to Fate, quote, Flores, etc., they're all mixed up in the killings. Fate remembers the meeting with Guadalupe Roncal, who's the reporter on the murders. And then Amafatino casually chats with a cop. Quote, they know each other, thought Fate. This isn't the first time they've talked. Let's go, said Rosa. Fate followed her. They crossed the yard and the street and their bodies cast extremely fine shadows that every five seconds were shaken by a tremor, as if the sun was spinning backward. When he got in the car, Fate thought he heard a laugh behind him and he turned around, but all he saw was Amafitano and the young man still talking in the same position as before. So weird, this pulsing vibration of the sun, very unsettling. Again, it reminds me of that spinning disc. 
Rose accompanies Guadalupe, Roncal and Fate to the Santa Teresa prison. And Fate, naughty, naughty, still hasn't filed his boxing match stories to New York. Rosa thinks that Rosa Mendez may be dead. And then the last three pages have that dovetailing again that we saw at the end of the first part. And this time it's two sections. We've got Guadalupe Roncal at prison with Fate interviewing a tall suspect. And then Fate and Rosa crossing the border to USA. When they do stop to have some food, Fate remembers, quote, the words of Guadalupe Brancal. No one pays attention to these killings, but the secret of the world is hidden in them. And I'm reminded again of those spinning fragments, the A and the B section, where we've got the two separate objects appear to come together, just like these paragraphs. And then we get on to part four, which is the part about the crimes. The discovery of six murdered women is described. Two were pregnant and then raped. And we learn that Santa Teresa police chief, Pedro Negret, has a son studying in Phoenix. The, quote, church desecrator appears at the end of May after this spate of murders. And he urinates deliberately and stabs the sexton, putting him in hospital. He's really a distraction, I think, this character. The inspector, Juan de Dios Martinez, quizzes the sexton in hospital. He then goes to the asylum to ask to see two patients that match the description. The, quote, church desecrator, or the penitent, as he's called later, strikes again at night. Martinez arranges a meal with the director of the asylum and she confirms the two suspected asylum patients were there all night. The penitent urinates and decapitates a statue again and Martinez muses on the vast quantity of urine. Quote, the man must have a bladder the size of a watermelon. The term the penitent is now used. Is this the murderer paying penance for his crimes in church? A Satanist? Is that his victim's urine, maybe? The penitent strikes again, this time killing Father Carrasco, a church caretaker. The police discuss that he probably gets around by car and has a change of clothes, so it's nobody's fool. Inspector Martinez gets a call from the asylum director to say that the penitent is sacrophobic. Emilia Mena Mena is found murdered in a dump and a janitor finds another body at school. She's 25 years old, probably killed by a stake. And the last dead woman to be found in June is Margarita Lopez Santos. She's 16 years old. There are no more deaths in July or August. Sergio Gonzalez from a newspaper La Razón in Mexico City is sent to Santa Teresa to report on the penitent. He speaks to Martinez and Martinez says to Gonzalez, quote, the deaths are accidental. The penitent just wanted to vent his rage on the images of the saints. Gonzalez chats to a priest, then flies back to Mexico and files his story. Martinez and the director of the asylum, we learn, is called Elvira Campus, have dinner and they chat. It's interspersed with descriptions of a violinist and cordis, and it really reminds you of the magic disc again. She describes what sacrophobia is. Quote, fear or hatred of the sacred of sacred objects, especially from your own religion. He thought about making a reference to Dracula, who fled to crucifixes, but he was afraid the director would laugh at him. And you believe the penitent suffers from sacrophobia? I've given it some thought, and I do. That reference to Dracula reminds me of the strange coffin in Charlie Cruz's bathroom. I wonder if there's a connection. They discuss many phobias, and the narrator says that before the reporter arrived, they began a sexual relationship. Negret, who's the police chief, and Epifanio drive to Villa Viciosa to get a new recruit for his friend, Pedro Rengifo. And when they drive back, they hit a coyote. It causes Epifanio bad dreams that night. He dreams there's a body in the back of his car. 
Lalo meets Pat, who's Ren Grifo's Irish chief at security, and he teaches him to shoot a gun. Another body is found. Inspector surmises that she's not a prostitute. Martinez, that is. Another body is found, and then Castillo Jimenez is sent to prison for killing his mother, and he admits to being penitent. But Martinez doesn't believe it. Lalo then protects Ringifo's wife from being shot by two gunmen, but his two colleagues run away. The wife and the friend go to hospital and Lalo is arrested. This is because one of the gunmen is badly wounded and is Patricio Lopez from the state judicial police. This is why Lalo's colleagues ran away. Negrette visits convalescing Lalo at Ringifo's and Lalo says he would like to be a policeman. So what has happened to this state judicial policeman, I wonder? Another murder. There's a body discovered by a truck driver. And then there's another murder. This time it's a prostitute. And Lalo sees policemen raping prostitutes who were accused of murder in the cells. Epifania is watching on. They both step outside for a cigarette. And this outrageous act is not really discussed much further. The two prostitutes are innocent, but ended up in prison, awaiting trial for two years. The next victim is called Bolero. She's 11 years old. And there are remarks that she was seen getting into a smart black Pellegrino, perhaps like the one that Alma Afetano saw before he told Rosa to flee. Lalo gets a tenement flat. He's 17 years old now. Martinez is taken off the penitent case because he or she hasn't struck for a while. And then the next victim is Lucy Ann Sander, an American from Arizona who visited Mexico with her friend Erica. The American consulate says the Mexican police will find the killer, but neither of them believe this. And then there's another dead woman, head buried, but the body is left exposed for some strange reason. And then there's another young schoolgirl, raped and murdered. She's seen getting into the black peregrino again. Why are there so many detailed accounts? It's a bit snoozy at this point in the book. And then there's another murder. And when the medics come, he, quote, asked her where she'd found the body and she said, in the bathroom. Well, let's put her back in the bathroom. You don't want trouble with the cops. So they know the police are corrupt. In July 1994, no women are murdered, but Harry Macnana makes an appearance. He frequents the bars and beats up a bartender, Miguel, he inquires with a woman called Elsa Fientes on the whereabouts of someone called Miguel Montes. And when the prostitute doesn't immediately answer, he whips her with his belt. And then there's another murder, La Vaca, a prostitute who gets killed in a drunken fight. Martinez then questions the killers. El Mariachi and El Cuervo are in prison. They say she knew a skinny girl in a coffee shop, and that's all. Manana finds the house of Montes, but his lead is nowhere to be seen. And Manana is staying with Mexican Aguilla. Manana is annoyed his lead has disappeared. And Aguilla says... I think nothing ever disappears. There are people and animals too, and even objects that for one reason or another sometimes seem to want to disappear, to vanish. Whether you believe it or not, Harry, sometimes a stone wants to vanish. I've seen it, but God won't let it happen. He won't let it happen because he can't. Do you believe in God, Harry? Yes, Senor Demetro, said Harry Magnana. Well then, trust in God. He won't let anything disappear. Martinez is seeing Dr. Campos. And there's this cycle of paragraphs again this time between Martinez and Magnana and Aguilla. Magnana and Aguilla read letters found in Montes' flat. They think they discover his hometown. Another body is inspected by Martinez and Marquez, and this time it's a college girl. They investigate it and there's no clues. And then there's another body at a building site. Galindo uncovers no clues. And then there's another body. A 15-year-old boyfriend admits to the murder. 
And then there's a seer comes into the picture. Florita Almada, La Santa, 70, appears on Signora TV. Lengthy description of her life and how flora and fauna can be used for divination, dendromancy, fructomancy, etc. There's a lovely reflection on reading. She can't have children and her husband brings home books by the pound. Quote, the time she would have devoted to a baby she used to study. Who taught her to read? Children taught me, said Florita Almada. There are no better teachers. Children with their alphabet books who came to her house for toasted cornmeal. Such is life that just when she thought her chances of taking classes or going back to school, unlikely since in Villa Pesquera they thought night school was the name of a brothel outside San Jose de Piermas, had vanished forever, she learned almost effortlessly to read and write. From that moment on, she read everything that fell into her hands. In a notebook, she jotted down thoughts and impressions inspired by her reading. She read old magazines and newspapers. She read political flyers, distributed every so often from pickups by young men with moustaches she read the daily papers she read the few books she could find and the books her husband got into the habit of bringing back each time he turned from his buying and selling trips to neighboring towns books he purchased sometimes by the pound 10 pounds of books 15 pounds of books once he came back with 25 pounds and she read every single one from each without exception she drew some lesson sometimes she read magazines from mexico city sometimes she read history books sometimes she read religious books sometimes she read dirty books that made her blush sitting alone at the table the pages lit by an oil lamp's light that seemed to dance and assume demonic shapes sometimes she read technical books about the cultivation of vineyards or the construction of prefabricated houses sometimes she read horror stories or ghost stories any kind of reading that providence placed within her reach and she learned something each time sometimes very little but something was left behind like a gold nugget in a trash heap as a little extra i would love to read out this marvelous passage about the seer's life after she left her husband she soon abandoned the business of buying and selling livestock and kept traveling with her late husband's dog and her revolver and sometimes her animals which began to age with her but this time she went as a healer one of the many in the blessed state of senora and on her travels she foraged for herbs or recorded her thoughts while the animals grazed as benito juarez the poet had done when he was a shepherd boy oh benito juarez what a great man so honorable so wise and what a charming boy too little was said about that period of his life in part because little was known in part because mexicans were aware that when they talked about children they tended to speak nonsense mind you she has something to say on the subject of the thousands of books she had read among them books on the history of mexico the history of spain the history of colombia the history of religion the history of the popes of rome the advances of nasa she had come across Across only a few pages that depicted with complete faithfulness utter faithfulness what the boy benito juarez must have felt more than thought when he went out to pasture with his flock and was sometimes gone for several days and nights as is the way of these things inside that book with a yellow cover everything was expressed so clearly that sometimes florita almada thought the author must have been a friend of benito juarez and that benito juarez had confided all his childhood experiences in the man's ear if such a thing were possible if it were possible to convey what one feels when night falls and the stars come out and one is alone in the vastness and life's truths night truths begin to march past one by one somehow swooning or as if the person out in the open were swooning 
screaming, or as if a strange sickness was circulating in the blood unnoticed. "'What are you doing, moon, up in the sky?' asked the little shepherd in the poem. "'What are you doing? Tell me, silent moon. Aren't you tired of plying the eternal byways?' "'The shepherd's life is like your life. He rises at first light and moves his flock across the field. Then, wary, he rests at evening and hopes for nothing more. What good is the shepherd's life to him or yours to you?' "'Tell me. The shepherd muses,' said Florita Amado in a transported voice. "'Where is it heading, my brief wandering, your immortal journey?' "'Man is born into pain, and being born itself means risking death,' said the poem. "'And also, but why bring to light? Why educate someone we'll console for living later? "'And also, if life is misery, why do we endure it? "'And also, this unblemished moon is the mortal condition. "'But you're not mortal, and what I say may matter little to you. "'And also, and on the contrary, you eternal solitary wanderer, "'you who are so pensive, it may be you understand this life on earth, "'what our suffering and sighing is.' What this death is, this last palling of the face and leaving earth behind, abandoning all familiar loving company. And also, what does the endless air do and that deep eternal blue? What does this enormous solitude portend and what am I? And also, this is what I know and feel, that from the eternal motions, from my fragile being, others may derive some good or happiness. And also, but life for me is wrong. And also, old, white-haired, weak, barefoot, bearing an enormous burden up mountain and down valley, over sharp rocks across deep sands and bracken, through wind and storm, when it's hot and later when it freezes, running on, running faster, crossing rivers, swamps, falling and rising and hurrying faster, no rest or relief, battered and bloody, at last coming to where the way and all effort has led, terrible, immense abyss into which upon falling all is forgotten. And also this, O virgin moon, is human life. And also, O resting flock, who don't, I think, know your own misery, how I envy you, not just because you travel as if trouble-free and soon forget each need, each hurt, each deathly fear, but more because you're never bored. And also, when you lie in the shade, on the grass, you're calm and happy, and you spend the great part of the year this way and feel no boredom. And also, I sit on the grass too, in the shade, but an anxiousness invades my mind, as if a thorn is pricking me. And also, yet I desire nothing. Until now, I have no reason for complaint. And at this point, after sighing deeply, Florita Armada would say that several conclusions could be drawn. One, that the thoughts that seize a shepherd can easily gallop away with him because it's human nature. Two, that facing boredom head-on was an act of bravery and Benito Juarez had done it and she had done it too and both had seen terrible things in the face of boredom, things she would rather not recall. Three, that the poem now she remembered was an was about an Asian shepherd, not a Mexican shepherd, but it made no difference since shepherds are the same everywhere. Four, that if it was true that all effort led to a vast abyss, she had two recommendations to begin with. First, not to cheat people, and second, to treat them properly. Beyond that, there was room for discussion. Rinalda is a TV personality. Rinalda consults her about a lost love and has prescribed, quote, calming infusions and other aromatic herbs. Rinaldo lets his friends visit her and one remarks, quote, 
She's a saint. She's a miracle worker. I wept and she wept with me. I couldn't find the words and she guessed what was wrong. She told me to try sulfur glycosides because they're supposed to stimulate the renal epithelium and they're a diuretic. I was told to try a course of colon hydrotherapy. I saw her sweat blood. I saw her forehead studded with rubies. She rocked me on her breast and sang me a lullaby. And when I woke up, it was like I'd just gotten out of the sauna. La Santa understands her Masilis, unfortunately, better than anyone. She goes on Rinaldo's show to deliver a message. There's a hilarious scene with a ventriloquist who believes his puppet is real and wants to murder him. And after the ventriloquist, Florita Armada goes into a trance. It's very magical. Quote, The police do nothing. The state governor must be informed, she said in a hoarse voice. This is no joke. Jose Andres Bricheno must hear about this. He must know what's being done to the women and girls of beautiful Santa Teresa. Beautiful and hard-working too. The silence must be broken, friends. Jose Andres Bricheno is a good man and a wise man, and he won't let so many killers go unpunished. Lalo Curo reads some forgotten books on policing. Interesting comment on the nature of a text and how we don't always know the status of an author, alive, dead, ill or well. And Lalo Curo is coming across very well in the novel. Harry Macnana follows Lee to Miguel Montes' girlfriend... Montes' cousin in Chucurit, and Macanana says he's a friend and owes Miguel Montes. The girlfriend takes Macanana to his abandoned family home, and Harry Macanana phones a friend, Don Richardson of the LAPD in California. It is revealed that Harry Macanana is a sheriff from Huntsville, Arizona, and that his wife has died. He's looking for Miguel Montes in, quote, an unofficial capacity. Miguel's friend in Tijuana is called Chucho, and I'm wondering, is this Chucho Flores the reporter, or just a coincidence? instance we have had two roses don richardson of the lapd gives harry machnana the name of a police guy in tijuana mr raul ramirez charezzo who lets machnana look through quote more than a thousand files at the police station he finds a file that looks like it could be Chucho, and they find Chucho at club, and he says Miguel Montes is living with a prostitute, Elsa Fuentes, in Santa Teresa, who works at Internal Affairs, and he's already spoken to her. Harry McNana drives back to Santa Teresa and goes to Internal Affairs, and Elsa Fuentes does not work there anymore, but he does manage to get an address in Colonia Granza. And then that is the end of part one. Whew! There are so many amazing ideas in this incredible first half. Most I've already discussed. The symbols of the magic disc, the strange book hanging to dry, the Madonna of Guadalupe with one eye open and another closed. Other things that I noticed which really interested me were the landscape changing so much, nothing stays the same. Natural things like that wind having that malevolence, the water turning the teeth brown and those rock fragments, perhaps representing history broken down or history put back together again. And then there was that strange book by Diest on geometry. And of of course the narrator keeping us fully in the dark have a listen to this this is when lola is on the search for alma fatano she visits an ex-student of her husband and quotes the second night as they were having dinner together the ex-student embraced her and she let him embrace her for a few seconds as if she needed him to and then she said something into his ear and the ex-student moved away and went to sit on the floor in a corner of the living room they were like that for hours she sitting in her chair and he sitting on the floor we aren't told what is said it's left to our imagination I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Piranesi. There were some wonderful emails that I received and some really excellent reviews on Goodreads. Tadiana Jones at fantasyliterature.com said, quote, It's a testament to the power of Clark's storytelling. Piranesi is an extraordinary and thoughtful novel with radiant writing, illuminating our own lives. 
And L said, quote, so what's the deal with Piranesi? Basically, there's a guy in tunnels or caves that's just incurably confused and doesn't know it. He's unreliable as a narrator, but he's also extremely boring. The labyrinth he finds himself in is somewhat more interesting, but he spends most of his time studying tides or talking to birds, then writing it all down. Reading this was a good deal more frustrating than it was fascinating for me. Unfortunately, I got about halfway and honestly did not want to keep reading. Yes, things were eventually uncovered and revealed, but the journey to get there was just not worth it. And Jessica said... Quote, the strange, mythical and quite sad nature of the story really starts to come through. I was actually quite stunned by how attached to Piranesia I got and how melancholic the ending made me feel. Thank you very much for your reviews and, and comments on Piranesia. I found it a really enjoyable book to read. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Talking of next books, after I'll publish part two of 2666 in two weeks, that's the 29th of October, November's book is going to be on The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of 2666 at the next episode. See you then.